You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. Well, it is an absolute honor and joy to be gathered together with you this afternoon around the Word of God and lifting song both old and new. Over the next three days, we'll be spending a lot of time in your Bible, so as you're grabbing it, the title of the sermon this afternoon is called Doxology, Theology, and the Mission of God. Doxology, Theology, and the Mission of God. In the late 21st century, between the rise of the praise and worship movement and the dawn of the seeker-sensitive church, the modern expression of the worship leader was birthed. Shaped by influential songwriters and later by a culture of Christian celebrity, the song leaders of church went through a dramatic reformation. In many ways, this shift in culture has been a healthy thing, and we thank God for that. In other ways, the function of the man leading the people of God in the worship of God has been glorified to a status that is unimaginable within the canon of Scripture. Today, there is an entire movement of worship leaders who are gathered together around the glory of Christ and the good of his church, saying, how can we serve the people of God in song and in prayer and in scripture? And this, indeed, is something we should celebrate and give thanks to God for. Throughout the course of this conference, one of the ways that we will be focusing on the word of God in worship is through expositional preaching. Now, expositional preaching is one way that we rely upon the sufficiency of the Word of God in congregational worship. Each of the men preaching will open the Word of God. They will point you to Christ, to the goodness and the sweetness of the gospel, and then they will show how these passages bear on our lives and on our ministries, both as sons and daughters of God and as people who herald the good news of the gospel in song. So Psalm 96 is where we'll spend the afternoon here together. Doxology, it's very important if we're going to use theological terms that we explain them to people. So the word doxology is a hybrid word from the Greek. Two words fused together, doxa meaning praise and logos meaning utterance. This is the spoken praise of God, the proclamation of exaltation. And theology, theologos, is the science of God or the study of God. And I would propose to you from the very beginning that as worship leaders who lead your congregations in song, you should above all things be students of God. Theology has both a practice and an aim. The practice of theology is reading and studying. It's consuming and reflecting upon both the word of God and the great men of history who have grappled with the same questions that you and that I are asking today. The aim of theology is to pursue God for the sake of knowing him. Theology runs its full course when doxology is its end. Theology runs its full course when doxology is its end. And to that end, let me invite you if you would just stand to your feet one more time for the reading of God's word this afternoon. And if you have your Bible in hand, I'll be reading from the ESV, 
And if you have that translation, I would encourage you to lift your voices as loud and as passionately as you just sung as we proclaim the word of God together. Psalm chapter 96. This is God's holy, inspired, perfect word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Would you pray with me? So Father, we come to You in the name of the Son and by the Holy Spirit. And we ask that as we have gathered today that we would gather around and behold the glory of Christ. May we find in these words of life a nourishing spring that refreshes your people. Would you allow this text to form us and to transform us? Would you give us eyes that would see truth clearly? Would you allow our ears to hear the voice of God spoken? Would you grant us hearts that would respond in humble and joyful and gospel-infused obedience? We pray these things for the glory of your name and the joy of your people. Amen. Would you please be seated? So Psalm 96 is a psalm of David, and we see this first in the canon in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, which was composed by David when the ark of God was returned to the tent. What was originally meant for the covenant people of God, of Israel, the Holy Spirit now sets forth as a hymn also for the Gentiles. So in what Charles Spurgeon called the missionary psalm, we see the inextricable nature of doxology, theology, and the mission of God. The inextricable nature of doxology, theology, and the mission of God. Spurgeon went on to say this on how we should approach this text. He said there should be no division made in this psalm. For the song is one and indivisible, a garment of praise without seam, woven from the top throughout. And that's exactly how we'll address the text here this morning, this afternoon. So as we walk through this passage, what I would like to do is draw from it five truths that I think will be really useful for us in helping shape congregational worship. Five truths that help shape congregational worship. Number one, the worship of the church is theocentric. 
The worship of the church is theocentric. It is God-centered. The worship of the church is God-centered. Read with me through verses 1 through 3 again. I'll read this to you. O sing to the Lord a new song. O sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name and tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations and His marvelous works among all the peoples. So what we find here are six imperatives in these verses. Six things that this text calls us to do. All right? Three times we see them clearly, right? Sing to the Lord. And then we see three times, one each of bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, and declare His glory among the nations. So we're being commanded to do this in this psalm. And there's also a beautiful rhythm of this modeling for it in the psalm as well. So sing to the Lord. Our worship should be theocentric, God-centered. What kind of singing does the Lord command? And who is this song for? Well, we see very clearly this song is to the Lord. And what kinds of songs are we to sing? We see from the very beginning, new songs. To sing a new song. The church has been given a song of salvation. The new song we sing, however, is rooted in the old song. While the phraseology of our hymns may change, the content of our worship is solidified. It is the gospel of Christ. It is centered, it terminates on God. And who is to sing this new song? All the earth. All the earth is beckoned to sing the praises of God and to bless his name. So we don't worship in isolation, drawing a circle around ourselves, imagining it's just me and God. There's no room for this in the canon. To just close our eyes and imagine it's just me and Jesus here. No, friends, open your eyes and see we are the gathered church to encourage one another, to stir one another up to faith and to good works. And it's centered on God. Corporate worship in the church serves as a rich time for the people of God to practice Colossians 3.16, to teach one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs. Far too often, the singing of the modern church is focused more on the sound of instruments than on the sound of gathered voices raised and proclaiming the worship of God. We see from the very beginning of this psalm that doxological singing is bidding the nations to sing with us all the earth. And we see here the songs that bless the Lord. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name. The songs of the church ought to declare the glory of God above all things. To sing songs and to lead congregational worship that is man-centered is to diminish an evidence of grace, a gift of God to us as his people. So I can tell you, my own practice, I'm taking great strides to ensure that our gatherings tell more of what God has done for us and less of what we will do for God. This is one step toward me trying to pursue this truth. The worship of the church tells more of what God has done for us than what we will do for God. It is God-centered. The second thing we see from this text is that the worship of the church is built upon, is shaped by, and is saturated with Scripture. That the worship of the church is built upon, shaped by, and saturated with the Word of God. 
Worship leaders should come to lead the people of God with a guitar in one hand and a Bible in the other and be well equipped to use both. The only prerequisite, please hear me say this, we don't need moving lights or colored lights or expensive sound systems. The only thing that we need is the word of God laid open in the midst of his people. And God will lead us, inform us, and his image for his glory. The worship of the church is built upon, shaped by, and saturated with the word of God. How can we bless the Lord unless he reveal himself to us? It's through the revelation of God that we know his salvation, his works, the nuances and contours of the gospel that form us and inform us. We are a people formed by the word of God. It's the word of God that calls us to worship in our gatherings. So even here throughout the Doxology and Theology Conference, every one of our gatherings will begin with a portion of Scripture welcoming in us, inviting us, rooting and grounding our time in the Word of God. It is God who calls His people to worship. And we see a fascinating nuance here in Psalm 96 that leads us to an understanding of how the Trinity informs this. Three times here the psalmist calls us to sing. And this isn't just creative redundancy. This isn't David trying to get a cut on CCM radio. No, this is intentional redundancy of David teaching us, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. You people who are prone to forget and to stray, sing to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon is very helpful in, here, in, in this conversation. And he says, and remember the time it was penned, thrice, three times, is the name of the Lord repeated and not without meaning. Pay careful attention to this. The sacred fire of adoration only burns with vehement flame. Only Spurgeon could say vehement flame. So rest assured, you don't have to sing that in church. Where the Trinity is believed in and beloved. I'm going to read that again. The sacred fire of adoration only burns with vehement flame. Where the doctrine of the Trinity is believed in and beloved. We are a people who worship the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. The Father has predestined our salvation, the Son has secured it, and the Holy Spirit has sealed it. We are kept by the power of the triune God. So we don't pursue theology as an end to itself. To do so would be the pursuit of knowledge rather than the pursuit of God. There's a grave difference between knowing about God and knowing God. John Piper elaborates. He says, if we just know him in our minds, we're not doing anything different than the devil. The devil is one of the most theological, orthodox beings in the universe. He just hates what he knows about God. He hates what he knows about God. Oftentimes in matters of theological discussion, there's a tendency that's aimed at information, and we forget that our final objective should be communion. The aim of theology is communion. The chief end of theology is doxology. We see also that theology shapes doxology. What we believe to be true about God shapes everything. Christian worship again, is built upon, shaped by, and saturated with Scripture because of this. Our doxology is informed by divine revelation. 
For the worship leader, our beliefs and our convictions are about God serve as the foundation of our worship of him. A love for the word of God is a prerequisite in becoming a worship leader. A love for the word of God without a vivid belief in the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Bible, our services and our very lives spiral out of control. The rhythm of worship is God reveals and we respond. God reveals, we respond. So our response is dictated and commanded by divine revelation. So we as worship leaders have the great joy of leading the people of God in the worship of God. And I hope even in gathering together here you feel a sense of of togetherness, of unity. We come from many different backgrounds, many different types of churches, many different geographic regions, all centered around the glory of Christ in his church. And in that we find unity and beauty. But even that we have to continually hold up to the word of God to reveal to burn away, to refine, to reform. For, I grew up the son of a Southern Baptist pastor. So from a very young age, I feel like I had most of the answers, like I would beat the other kids in Sunday school, right? So I'm a Pharisee from birth. <laughs> and something happens as you continue to grow, you start to realize, well, other people actually know a lot more than me. There's more people outside of my church of 500 people. People much smarter than me. People who can memorize entire books of the Bible. I have a hard time memorizing a chapter. So I remember going through a time in my early 20s of feeling very deficient and second class in matters of theology. And in some ways, hear me say this, rightfully so. I'd concentrated most of my effort into leading song. I'd worshipped at the idol of church growth. And I'd neglected the quiet practices neglected spiritual disciplines of daily coming before God, opening up the scriptures and letting them breathe life into my soul. But please hear me say this. Even with a title of, of a conference called Doxology and Theology, these terms are not meant to humble anyone. In a creation of a new status or a caste system, what we're trying to do is beckon hearts and the minds of worship leaders to communion with God and to allow those men to stand before their congregations and point and herald the word of God above all things. Theology is not reserved for merely senior pastors who preach. Theology is not reserved for academia. Friends, hear me say, theology is for all of us. Theology is for all of us. The promises of the new covenant is God would write his law upon our hearts. And in fact, he has. So we're not commended by how much we know or who we quote or who we tweet. We are commended by the spotless blood of Christ that bore the wrath of God and stood in our place. And that is the center, the blazing center of our theology. The third thing is that the worship of the church is gospel wrought. The worship of the church is gospel wrought. Work with me in verses two and three. It says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. The role and the responsibility of the worship leader is to both remember and remind others of the gospel. 
when gospel reminding becomes common in our culture of churches, we will be a people who are rooted and grounded firmly and fixed in our identity, in Christ who died once for all. So one of our church members here at Providence sent me a text message one day this week. And I'd like to read it to you word for word. And what I am praying for in this is that God would bless our churches with thousands upon thousands of church members who understand the gospel this way. And this is the text that I received from him at about 7 o'clock before he left for work. Thank you, Doug Brewer. He said, I want to encourage you with the gospel. God made you. The all-powerful and all-knowing, all-sovereign God created you in his image. Yet Adam, by Adam's sin, you inherited sin, and therefore were once an enemy of God. But God, being rich in mercy and love, sent his son Jesus to bear the punishment of your sin. Thereby, you have been set free, being reconciled to God by Jesus. You are no longer an enemy of God, but now a child of God. Repent and believe in Jesus that by faith in God's grace alone you are saved. Praise God for Doug Brewer. Praise God for churches who are allowing the gospel of Christ and this daily reminding one another of the gospel is moving forward in power. And hear me say, as a pastor, I was moved both to tears and to doxology by this text sent by a faithful brother. Within the context of worship, we have a unique opportunity to tell of his salvation day after day through the use of singing and praying and confessing and praising and greeting. We are able to tell of the salvation of God day by day. C.J. Mahaney says that it's the primary duty of the Christian to daily remember the gospel. And worship leaders are no exception. This week it could have served you very well having a church member send you a text on a very stressful Tuesday afternoon or a tense night in your home on Thursday and to be reminded of the gospel. I would encourage you to be declaring and telling of the salvation of our God to one another in your churches. Let's continue to read in Psalm 96, verses four through nine. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. With a cursory study of this text, we find a list of the attributes of God pointing us to remember his character. God is great. God is worthy of worship. He's the one true God. He's the God of creation. He's majestic and strong and beautiful and glorious. He's worthy of an offering and he's holy. So thanks be to God because He has spoken to us. And the truths of our God lead us to praise Him, to extol Him, to declare His glory above all things. 
we see here how theology propels doxology. The more we come to know God, the more we long to know Him. The more knowledge we have of Him, the more we want of Him. Our appetites are changed and transformed. Theology prompts our hearts to passionately pursue truth. And in light of that, there's no end to this rhythm of God revealing, man responding, God revealing, man responding. We see a few things that the gospel propels here. The gospel propels us to ascribe greatness to God. You see that in verses 7 and 8? The primary reason the church gathers is for the glory of Christ. We are, in fact, the image bearers of God. We gather together for corporate worship to ascribe to God the worship that is due Him. We declare His greatness and truth through Scripture and through sermon and through song and through sacrament. And while it should be noted there are many other reasons we gather for worship, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, stir one another up to love and to good deeds. There are many things that happen, disciple making, evangelism, edification of the body. But what we gather around is the glory of Christ. Our message is not the benefits that come from being his people. Our message is Christ and him crucified. D.A. Carson is very useful in this conversation. I want you to hear what he has to say. He said, you cannot find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship. I gave up long ago on the music of our church trying to be good. I just want it to be good enough. That's my aside. Carson continues, continues. He says, despite the protestations, and please listen to this, that the reality of this truth rest in your soul. Sometimes wonders if we are beginning to worship worship rather than to worship God. As a brother put it to me, it's a bit like those who begin by admiring the sunset and soon begin to admire themselves admiring the sunset. And so as worship leaders, we soon forget that the glory of God is at the center of this and we stop admiring Him and start to admire the sound of our own voice on the other side of a microphone. We start to admire our own names at the bottom of a slide. Because God's glory cannot be touched and it cannot be matched. It is not for us. It is for Him alone. The gospel propels us to bring worshipful offerings to God. In verse 8, we must realize that even our offerings are evidences of grace. There's nothing that we bring to him that is not given by grace. The role that you fill in your congregation right now is grace. And your title is temporary. Our identity is not in what we do. Our identity is not in what offering we bring. Our identity is not in how well an hour on Sunday together goes. No, our identity is in Christ. And we see in verse 9 that the gospel propels us to tremble. One of the greatest weaknesses of the evangelical church is our disinclination to tremble. We fill our songs with how much God loves us, but fail to show how God has loved us by pouring out his wrath on Christ. We do well in singing of God's love, but God is equally love and justice. 
God is equally merciful and wrathful. Much of our singing and praying do well in asserting the love of God and the sovereignty of God, but we must also make room that the character of God is explored both in the nuances of the songs we sing and the prayers we pray. This is one of the reasons that every session we gather together we'll be singing the doxology. That way, just in case, there's no Trinitarian overtone of any other song we sing, well, it's right there. We want to be people who sing the wisdom of God and who allow it to inform, to shape our congregational worship, to shape our very lives. So the gospel propels us. The fourth thing we see is that the worship of the church is congregational, that it is congregational. This psalm that David had written was penned by Asaph, but not only for Asaph, but for he and his sons to sing. This was a congregational experience. So I would encourage us to be more intentional about making worship more congregational. There are many ways we could prescribe this. I'll just name just a few. Our use of first-person singular pronouns is called for. We see it in the Psalms. We see it throughout. However, there should be just as much we vocabulary as there is me vocabulary in our services. And I would even encourage, because of the humanistic, self-serving culture that we now live in, I might even prescribe more we than me. So work through your pronouns and, and decide what the Lord would lead you to do. We don't gather on Sundays to see pomp and pageantry performed. We gather to worship as a people who have been redeemed by the power of the cross. The primary function of the church singing is the church singing. We're not calling God down from the sky. We're encouraging one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God's presence is covenantal and is everywhere. We don't have to contend for it. It's a desire of God that his presence be among his people. As we open up his word and let it do what it will. We've seen how our worship is informed and shaped by what we know of God. We've looked at the importance of the drive and the identity of the worship leader, but it doesn't end there. Our goal with all of this is that we would make disciples of all nations. While worship is theocentric, it is also declarative. While it is vertical, it is also horizontal. Biblical worship is aimed at God, but also edifies the church and has the nations in sight. One of the ways that we're doing this here at Providence is trying to be intentional in thinking through how congregational our services are. Can the average man sing in the key that you sing in? Is the volume in your room so loud that you can't hear any voices? The volume will be louder at this conference. <laughs> so one way I try to do that very, very practically is keep the music lower on Sunday. And we use very simple instrumentation. Now we do that because I'm leading our band, and I'm half the musician of the least of you. So it's not philosophical or even theological as much as it is just practical. One of the things that we've done to just encourage the congregational nature of our services also is anytime that we're not singing, we have scripture on the screen. Therefore, the song that we're singing serves as exposition of that text. And I would encourage you, if the people in your congregation see a passage on your screen and they don't connect that to the song you're singing, you should lose the song. 
The worship of the church is congregational. It is not performance. Our time together is so short. We have no time to sing pop songs over one another. No, when we gather together, we're singing the glory and the nature of God, not John Mayer. The worship of the church is congregational. Here's a good question. You can make leave, and maybe even tonight at dinner, go to dinner with some worship leaders that you meet. Please do. Do not go to dinner alone. And, and ask this question to one another. Do your people know that they will be a part of a worship service when they gather, not merely entertained by a worship service? When we gather together, we're coming as a part of the whole, not for the sake of entertainment. And the fifth truth we see is that the worship of the church is missional. And I wish I could say that we have no hint of this at this point, but like Spurgeon encourages, from first to last, this psalm is blatant in its message. So read with me again, verses 10 through 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the fields The trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. We worship among the nations. We have not been called to keep the mysteries and the declarations of the gospel to ourselves. We haven't been redeemed as the people of God to be quiet about its goodness. Rather, We've been summoned to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And in James Boyce's commentary on this psalm, he teaches, and I quote, the psalm teaches that worship should never be merely a private thing, something between ourselves and God only, but should also be that which leads to missionary witness. Guys, please listen to me. We do a disservice both to our own souls and the health of our congregations if we stand behind a microphone and boldly proclaim a gospel and then scatter back to our homes and are scared to death to mention those truths to our neighbor. So I want to strongly encourage you, don't say anything through a microphone that you wouldn't say to your neighbor or your coworker. The gospel is powerful and effective. Our God is the God who saves who flexes his might and salvation is the result and he is gathering for himself a people. Not merely the people who gather within the four walls of our churches but a people who are called by his name for his glory. So we worship among the nations and finally we worship with an eschatological eye. We worship with an eschatological eye. Here's what that means. As the people of God we worship in light of eternity. As his children, as the born again covenant people of God, we believe that they will come when Christ will return and God will dwell among his people. And we will worship him forever. And when we gather as the body of Christ, we are rehearsing for the worship of eternity as well as participating in it even now. So we're encouraged when we come together because we have a hope that lies before us that the day will come when Christ will come and our worship, which is broken at best, will be perfected in light of his glory, in light of his grace. And here we say our best attempts at constructing a liturgy in light of scripture 
is just that. So when we talk about how to prescribe worship upon one another, we hold every practice up to the word of God. And we handle these conversations with grace and with humility before God and before one another. So I would invite you to pray even at this conference where when worship leaders get together, insecurities, you know. And to say, you know what, this entire conference will be marked by humble, reverent awe. Believing full well that God has revealed himself to us. And we believe emphatically that he has. And in light of that revelation, everything we can do to live in light of it, to build worship services around it, to build the entirety of our lives and families around it, we know that God's grace alone perfects us. Not how liturgical or how historical your service or my service may be. So there's no room for pride in this conversation. Revelation 5, 9, and 10, we have this amazing picture of all of these truths, and I don't have time, for the sake of time, I won't delve into them, but you'll see them clearly. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So we have ideas of what congregational worship should look like. But again, we hold all of our practices, all of our convictions to the light of his word. We realize that worship leader is a man-given title. There's an imperfect title for you and what I do. I would contend, but because of the culture of the church, it's not going anywhere for a long time. So are you a worship pastor? Are you a worship leader? Are you a music minister? Are you a song leader? It doesn't really matter. Stand before your people in humility and with all boldness, shielded under the word of God and under its authority, and proclaim the gospel to be true and sufficient. The role of the worship leader should not be overemphasized or underemphasized but seen in the context as one small piece of the body of Christ. A small piece. And our position before God is not laid upon us by what you can do for him, but what Christ has already done for you. God doesn't need trendy worship leaders to come and save his church. We are a kept people in the power and the unchanging nature of the triune God. And B.B. Warfield sufficiently wraps up what I'd like to communicate both to my own identity and to yours. And hear me once again remind you of the gospel in a different and in a nuanced way. There's nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that you and that I can rest. So the worship leader simultaneously serves a theological, a doxological function to the glory of God and for the good of his people. This role is once again approached with humility before God and the people that we serve. So leading the body of Christ in worship as scripture has commanded, hear me say this, produces 
an insatiable joy. Knowing that you and I have, yes, been commissioned, appointed, employed by the grace of God to love and to serve and to shepherd a people. And to know full well at the same time that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Let me invite, if you would, bow your head with me and I'll just close with a word of prayer. So, Father, we do pray that churches around the globe would be led by men who walk in light of these truths, who faithfully serve both you and local congregations. God, we thank you for your word that teaches, that reproves, that corrects, that trains us for righteousness. We thank you that you're the God who has revealed himself to us in creation, in Christ. And you've spoken to us through your word. I pray for these brothers from around the country who are here. Would you allow our conversations, our experiences of gathering together under it and declaring your glory to be filled with a palpable sense of just sweetness of being gathered together as one church centered around the gospel of grace that we may joyfully declare these truths to one another placing you at the center of everything that occurs and praise things for your glory and for the joy of your people. Amen.